1: In today's episode, I'm speaking to a lady who was one half of one of the greatest pop duos in British history. They started over 10 million records and had 14 hits on the UK charts. So sit back, relax and enjoy this fantastic chat with Dollar's very own Trees of (laughs) Bazaar. Here we go. go. Hey, I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Hey, everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello, everybody, this is Francis Dunry from It Bites. Hi, everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi, everyone, this is Charlene. Hi.
0: This is Betty Seaton from Music Eve. Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory. And you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show podcast.
2: If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. It's time, it's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And, now, and now, welcome your host,
0: Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show.
1: Hello, hello, it's Ladies Rewind Show with me, Rob, the face Radio Burgess. How are you? How are you doing? I hope you're okay. Um, I've got to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. and Thank you for checking out the YouTube channel. Um, I'm new to that and I know people have been looking, so thank you so much for that. And there's a link in the description in case you've missed it. Just click it, check it all out. It's great. Today's episode was a first because I got to call Australia. That's the first one for the 80's Rewind Show podcast. Really exciting. Never called Australia before. And it was really clear. I was really amazed. I'm so old-fashioned in my mind I, I forget things actually work really well now, even if it is in Australia. Um, I called Australia because I spoke to the Bazaar from Dollar. Dollar was a fantastic duo with of Bazaar and David Van Day, and they had such hits as Handheld in Black and White, and Mira Mira, to name two big ones and they also did some songwriting as well we talk a bit about that in the episode and also where she started in her music career she's a lovely lady we had a great chat and she's got a secret which she's going to reveal right at the end of the episode and we're going to catch up in a few months to find out how we're getting on I'm going to say no more I'm just going to tease you till you get to the end of the episode and don't skip don't skip do the whole thing as for the show, I'm going to have some guests from the 90s on soon as well. We're going to have some 90s guests. I'm really excited about that. We're going to break out a little bit and do something a little bit different. But yet again, thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. And thank you for telling your friends all about it. Links in the description if you want to check out some more details about the show. But thank you very much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Anyway, let's do it. If we can go back a bit, if that's all right. Well yes. you, you said your mum's, is it 96?
2: My mother's 96, hopefully 97 in July, which is... Quite extraordinary, really.
1: That's wonderful. And uh, was she into music? Was um, was, was, you, was it a musical household growing up?
2: No, not at uh, So my, my father, um, my late dad, he was a semi-professional jazz guitarist. Wow. So I did have music sort of in the house a little bit. And um, when I was young, I would listen, you know, he would be listening to Joe Pass, Django Reinhardt, um, Rubeck, by, you know, Dave Brubeck, um, that kind of thing. So, uh, um, and then Frank and Ella. So Frank and Ella were like the, you know, and, and then we go to more of the avant-garde. So, um, yeah, I saw his music and he'd be packed and he played, play, he was a semi-professional jazz guitarist in a small little band that just did some local gigs.
1: That's fantastic. And was your influences musically from your dad? Was it jazz you was into, as you into pop, was you into rock?
2: I was a ballet girl.
1: Oh, really? I was,
2: into, I was into classical music. I fell in love with ballet at the age of two and a half, because so I was taken to um, a ballet studio with my older sister, and I refused to leave. And I was actually a very compliant little girl; I was very polite. But I saw this. I thought I'm not going anywhere. And the teacher was so nice, and I was so being so stubborn. And my mother was like having a bit of a you know worry about what was I going to do. And um, the teacher came home and said, "Well, if she stands at the back." doesn't make a sound, she can stay. So I was allowed to stand at the back and mimic what they were doing. So from the age of two and a half I started ballet and I went, I was allowed to go every week. Wow. Every week and stand at the back. And uh and I think that they had a pianist and obviously they play some sort of classical music. And from a very young age I fell in love. So with all the the real classicists and I've since I'm I'm a mad um classical fan of music but um uh, Tchaikovsky uh Chopin um you know the ballet pieces but um Beethoven I mean you name it and I'm I listen to I listen to Classic FM I speak to Bill Oberton who's a fave of mine he's does the night shift so it's my day and I and I send him messages on uh, tweets on Twitter and um <laughs> Uh, my whole horizons, of I mean, I've got like a rainbow. I mean, the amount of music I listen to is just extraordinary. And it kind of balances out all the pop. Mm-hmm. And you understand there's still only eight notes in an octave. Uh, and how extraordinary that you've got these incredible melodies. So- I mean, you know, it doesn't matter what jazz, rock, you know, whatever. It's um, so... I fell in love with music probably the same day as I fell in love with ballet, really about two and a half. And um, my first records were classical records, um, Chopin nocturnes, Tchaikovsky. I think it was um, Swan Lake. Um, then it was um, Dvorak, the New World Symphony. Uh, and I saved up my pocket money when I was old enough, or my mum and dad would buy it for a pres- birthday present, and um, they and I used to listen to them all the time. I mean, but I knew
1: every melody off by heart. Wow, that's crazy! Uh, it's Funny if you mentioned that during the eighties, they did that. I don't know if you remember. There was a classic series that came out with a record and a magazine, and I actually I've still got all those. I bought them at the time. <laughs> <laughs> then, I think Holst Planets was my favourite. I think that's the one. Okay,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. Jupiter's pretty really fantastic. Yeah, yes,
1: yeah, it's, it's just so moody, and oh, it just moves in such a <laughs> beautiful way. <voices>. Right.
2: <laughs>
1: so, um. You joined a band called Guys and Dolls at 17, is that right? You went along for an audition and joined that.
2: Yeah, I thought I was going for um, a sort of a musical sort of like group that was touring. I had no idea it was a pop group exactly, so I was um, completely out of my depth. I My audition was, uh, my song was somewhere from West Side Story, really contemporary, hmm. and you had to say something, so I chose a piece of Shakespeare. And I wore a long black skirt and a black polo neck jumper. And I had like long sort of like dark Julie Felix hair, probably no makeup. And just, that was me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's fantastic. I was watching it on YouTube the other day. Uh, there's a whole lot of loving that was the first single, wasn't it? Is that right? Yeah. And, uh, and it was all medallions and open shirts and hairspray. It was wonderful oh to watch. And I
2: was just, I was a bit, I mean, I wasn't the youngest, uh, Julie Forsyth was the youngest and then David Van Day was the next youngest, but I was the most naive because they all went to Italia Conti, you know, the premier showbiz musical theatre school, so they'd all had experience with um, TV and performing and I'd had some experience, you know, with tiny bits of performing, but they were so streetwise and I was just like a Baby, I'm seriously, uh, yeah, I had no idea, and I probably thought putty in our hands, she is, you know, yeah, it's either that or I was the short, I mean, you know, this is in the book, I was the shortest person that they could find to match up with David because they wanted to have the three girls and the three boys, but that's not a jive, but I mean, it's true, you know, yeah. <laughs> not it's a tall guy, so we look, we were the cute ones, I mean, you know, you've got to have your image together.
1: Right. Was it a touring band? Did it tour much?
2: Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Oh, about forty-eight weeks of the year.
1: Oh, really? We never
2: got- ever stopped working. We we were a cab. So we were the that was the cabaret circuit. Everyone and in those days, so it was seventy-four to seventy-eight, that was my stint. That was how people went out, in, and and I think that's a really nice way to have a night out. You go. And you have a meal, might not be the greatest food, but you're going to get a show and a meal and have a glass of wine or two. And it's all like, I quite like that. It's a bit like Vegas. So Batley's Variety Club, that was one of the biggest in the land. You know, you get big artists coming here from the States. Uh, Here, that's why I think I'm here. You know, big artists, you know, um, huge big acts playing because that's how people like to go out. You work hard, you save your money. You want to have a night out. We want to go and be looked after. And having your table in that cabaret style—it's quite a nice way of entertainment, I think.
1: Yeah, was it like a lineup where you were part of a lineup, or did you get like a?
2: No, show? no, we had our own shows. I mean, it's a big deal, you know, and we worked every day of the week. And we were—we had a a a van that had converted sort of aeroplane sort of seats that went back a little bit and we would literally be like we'd be flying somewhere we'd be on the road. It was so hard. I mean, you know, yeah. you think it's glamorous, we would pay diddly squat, you know, and it was really hard.
1: Was it great training? It
2: so great training. Yeah. I learned a lot. And actually the most thing I learned was about, A, be nice to everybody because you never know who you're going to meet on the way down. So I was always very nice to receptionists and everyone, you know, I'd always be very polite. That's my upbringing anyway. But I learned that I somehow fell in love with pop music. I mean, you know, crazy, crazy. And started really analysing, you know, and so I thought, wow, you know, from the carpenters to listening to everything and and That was my um, training in harmonies, you know, with guys and dolls. You've got three, six voices. How do you put that together to make a good sounding record? And everyone finds their slot. And I had the highest voice and the lightest voice. So I was always on the top. So, but I understood about harmonies. And that's, I think that's just been probably from my dad or from listening to The Carpenters, you know, which was, was the first pop record I ever listened to kind of understood where i fitted in hmm. and and that those are those that's your training you're completely right robbie that's the training yeah
1: i love that your journey was backwards pop came after
2: <laughs> I, yeah. I had no idea about but as i said i went into that audition i thought i don't like pop music what are they talking about pop band you know it's nothing like my intentions but i had the old adage because i used to love watching um musicals and, mm. and the whole thing I, I must have heard somewhere you know you have to say you can do everything so you, if you can't ride a horse if you go for an audition say oh, of course I can ride a horse or you know what do you like oh yeah do you like pop music oh, I love pop music I'm going I don't know anything about pop music so I just said yes to everything because that's the, that was the Hollywood era Yeah, you know just say yes and then work it out afterwards if you get the job So um, that's what I did. And I went and um, it's been written, but you'll, we went to that first meeting when we were all introduced, guys and dolls. And I was most definitely the odd one out. Oh, really? I was like, why was I there? (laughs) Little Miss Mouse, who sat in the corner, I just watched them, so loud and so confident. And there's me being super quiet and respectful and just, Ooh, you know and then they asked to sign the contracts and there's me going don't think we should be doing that because you need to get some legal advice I mean that's you know I had all I had a different upbringing completely yeah. you know and Dominic and Paul they were 10 years older than me I mean they had a lot of experience in the music industry I had nothing
1: <laughs> you had street smarts that's what you had
2: <laughs> I don't even I I think I just you know I don't think I did Robbie I think I had um, an innate belief in myself, which I've kind of lost it for a while through the decades, you know. Uh, but I think I just believe that if you are incredibly honest and open, your sincerity will shine through. Hmm. Eventually, you know, with and especially, I mean, that is ridiculous as a statement, isn't it? No, you know, in the social media world when everyone is faking everyone with influences and everything, that would be the most ridiculously naive statement you could make. Yet here I am, an almost 68-year-old going, I still believe that. I think it will cut through if you say it in the right, Uh, uh, that's what I believe. I mean, I think I'm mad, probably.
1: (laughs) The best kind of mad though. Um, (laughs) So we get to 77 and you and David are sort of, did you just have enough or was it just you wanted to go off and do a new career was the touring getting to you was there too much work Uh, oh
2: no we got kicked out oh really Uh, yeah, yeah yeah they got we got kicked out because i kept making waves about the quality of the records and and the songs and our musical direction fundamentally and david wasn't getting enough camera shots and um he just wanted to be the Davy Jones and and um, David Cassidy that he always knew he could be, and oh. um, so we got kicked out because we just made too many waves.
1: Right, and then so was when you got kicked out. Did you and David instantly know you wanted to work together? Was it sort of what do we do now kind of scenario, or was it?
2: No, he wanted to be a solo artist, and I pretended to be a secretary. Um, and I would try and phone record companies and get him a, an interview or something, and I couldn't. And I, um, ironically, I got offered, um, a solo deal, uh, with, um, EMI Holland for myself. And I went, I just rejected it. I mean, I said, well, no, no, you've got the wrong person. It's him. He's, He's the one, you know, and I'm just, I'm happy to be supporting him, you know, so in love with him. And, uh. No, so um, it just happened that we met up with some people who said, oh, I think maybe if you were a duo, that would be good. There's no UK duo. You mm-hmm. know, there's Donnie Marie and there's you know, Livy Newton-John and John Travolta with Greece, but there's no UK. How about that? And um, I think it was sort of desperation stakes then, and David maybe said, well, give it a whirl and see. And uh, we were offered a, a contract about, I don't know, what the, few weeks later it didn't take very long
1: wow and it was, was it a french label that offered you a deal? uh
2: so no, it was um a, a uk label called acrobat records and um they ended up getting uh a deal with career the french label um for distribution yeah yeah so um that's how it worked but uh and the guy was called chris Yule, who was a Fabulous MD from, I think he was at CBS. Was it EMI? Can't quite remember now, but um, very great ears. I mean, one of the best pairs of the ears I've ever.
1: And, and how quickly out. did you get working on the first album? Was it? Was it uh, like, did you get straight stuck into it?
2: Straight stuck into it. And we were meant to work with uh, David Courtney because he wrote the first two tracks, Shooting Star and Who You With The Moonlight. But um, he was busy uh working with somebody else. So um Chris Yule had signed Chris Neal as a producer and said, Well, you can't work with David Courtney, so you'll have to work with him. And, and we just said, Well, okay. And of course, how amazing was that? How fortuitous that you get to work with one of the best producers globally. I mean, ever. Chris Neal is a is a legend. I mean, it's just brilliant.
1: What I love about the album is um I I have not had it in a while, so I listened to it fresh again. And it's like an ELO space concept album. And that's that's what I loved about it. It was it's like this is not the dollar I know, but this is the dollar I really like. It was it was mm. like I just loved, I mean, Star Control, I think is fantastic. I think it's an amazing track.
2: I'm so happy you say that. You know, so what I did about three nights ago, not that you into my personal life too much, but <laughs> I went to bed about half past nine um other circumstances of play. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna be in my room. I'm gonna to listen to the whole of the first album, the shooting stars album. So I haven't listened to it in a long time, all the way through. And I listened to it. And um yeah, of course you get to the end of it and, and I've had a few messages from some people on my team going, You gotta perform that live. You've got to perform that live. And why was it like and and really what happened was that's towards the end of the recording of the album, and whether it was the budget getting tight or time wise and things weren't working so well and I remember writing that because it was really an homage to the carpenters mm. Inter- yeah. you know calling occupants from independent, which i i you know, I loved that music so much, and it was really meant to be a respectful nod to to them yeah and i've yeah. had this idea about how it would work but we would had this sort of structure that david would sing the lead vocals and i'd be doing all the layering and the, the creating the sound i mean which is just as important but well we could have a long chat about that but <laughs> <laughs> but um it wasn't working I, I, and i think we were under the pump basically and so Chris came back in and he said, look, I've got an idea. And he pulled this vocoder out with this person. They said, how about we do it like this? And I think I thought that it was going to start like that, but kind of transition into a vocal, Mm. like a carpenter's beautiful lush, and it didn't. Mm. And he ended up doing the whole thing. And to be very honest, you know, I was heartbroken because I thought the melody was, it was just such a a yearning kind of gentle, sad kind of melody that I don't think, I love the backing track and everything, but I don't think the vocoder really gave the track exactly what it needed. That's my, what did you think? What do you think?
1: I think, I love a vocoder. I think it's it's that dimensional sound that you can't get from a human. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. And what was interesting was um, the Carpenters covered International by a band called Klaatu. I don't know if you know this. Nice. Um, so it was a cover from a band called Klaatu. I'm going to quickly dive into the history because it's quite interesting. So in I think it's 1978. There's a white vinyl floating around um, and it was got sent out to record companies and DJs. Everyone was picking it up and playing it thinking it was the next Beatles album because it's very similar to the Beatles. And it turns out it was a Canadian band called Clatu, um, and the carpenters somewhere along the line heard the single, interplanetary craft, and covered it. Now, what's interesting is Star Control sounds a lot like the Clatu album. It's really strange. So,
2: really, that you, you like the vocoder, but do, you, do you, so? I I guess thought it might morph. It would kind of open out into a different kind of. No, but um I love the melody and, and, and the ending for me, I remember exactly the synthesizers and, and the very last one. It's like someone saying, Bye bye, going off to Pluto somewhere. It's just it's just so gentle and it's very it, it's mesmerizing. And years later with my two kids, love Star Wars, you know, so every time you know, I just like that kind of stuff. I'm not a sci-fi person, but yeah. um yeah, it was um, it was it was a lovely track, and I'm not sure, you know, that treatment was ideal, but uh, you know, you've got other things at stake. Yeah,
1: it's lovely. And on that, obviously, you had um, you had uh, Love's Got a Hold on Me as well, which was your first self written one. Is that right? So, can we talk about the writing of that? Yeah. Was that easy to write? Was it quick song to to do?
2: Um, so we were in our flat and uh, had my gra- upright piano sort of stuck in. The bedroom there really and uh it was inspired by um the Bee Gees how deep is your love mm. because I love the Bee Ge- again it's harmonies you know I'm going how do they do that how do they create that sound it's not just that it's a sound and I thought it sounded so airy which I guess resonated with me and I thought try and do something that suits you (laughs) I'm not trying to do something that is the opposite um, which is what we all like to do you've got red hair make it brown you know whatever um yeah I think that the the melody came quite easily and um it was obviously I was writing it for David because that's that was the you know if you've got a hit record and with the guys and dolls experience don't don't upset the apple cart, just stick to the formula yeah um and uh yeah I, I kind of i i liked it was a very natural, easy song to write and and it and it was uh ideas of you know summer breezes you know, and that lovely sort of freshness, and uh, we went into the studio and he couldn't sing it it wow. was a it was a nightmare really, and um I remember Chris Neal looking at me because I was in the control room and Dave was in the studio. And he said, but you wrote this, right? I said, yeah. he said, it's in his key. And I said, yes. (laughs) And he said, he looked at me, I said, shrugged. I mean, I thought, because, you know, that's David. David's, you know, he could... If he got something, he'd be okay. If it didn't fit instantly with him, he couldn't learn it. Mm. You know, he just—it just, just was—he just was. It had to be a natural, instinctive thing. And um so that's when Chris said, "Well, you go and have a go." And I remember, I'm a—I'm a very polite. I would say, "Oh no, no, no!" I said, "It's not in my key," and—and. And, that's not what we're meant to do. And he looked at me and said, just go and have a try. And I hate doing that, maybe from when I was a kid at school and, you know, not achieving and I was a bit embarrassed. And I still thought, oh, my gosh. I thought, okay, you know, do the right thing. And I wandered in. And obviously, I've got David's expression in the control room and Chris expectantly looking at me and thinking, this is just going to be horrible. I know it's going to be high. You know, I thought, just just try, you know, what can you do? And and um, I started singing the melody, you know, there's Chris Neal beaming through the studio going like this. And I'm, and I'm going, really? And he goes, really, really? And I'm going, okay. Because, you know, you have this helmet on. You are the backing. You know, I've always been a backing vocalist in Guys and Dolls. You know, this is my job. That's what I do. I like to do everything I do very well for my ballet training, be very specific. I'm a perfectionist. And suddenly it was very different.
1: Yeah. I mean, if if I'm allowed to indulge for a second, I think Star Control. Thank you. I think Star Control would be my, my album, Deep Cut, but I think I would have released Love Street. I think that's the track I would have released. Okay. Yeah. 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 And- I think that that would have been a good single to release because he released "I Want to Hold Your Hand," didn't you? But I think if it was me, I would have swapped it and released "Love Street."
2: Yeah, a bit hazy with that. I think it was to do with yeah, I can't even remember. I think we recorded "Love Street" afterwards. I'm not sure, but um, didn't matter because you know "I Want to Hold Your Hand" was a big top ten, and who who's going to ever think about covering a Beatles track? You know, right? Yeah, Crystal goes and he goes. Let's do this. Okay. But, you know, probably after Love's got a hold of me, I would have, whatever he would have said, I would jump that high, I'd go, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and um, I used to think he was so knowledgeable and so experienced. And now I realize he was a guy, you know, maybe about six, seven years older than me. You know, yeah. but you kind of look at everyone that's doing something as if they know everything. But they don't. But that's how you. That's how you feel.
1: And then we get to the second album in 1980, and it's it was more of a rocky album. Was it? it had more of a rocky sound to it? And um, I, I like that. I like that it had a rocky track to it. And I was thinking at the time that Dollar was almost sort of following the Zeitgeist. You had the sort of Shooting Star album, which was very Star Warsy and spacey. And then you could have My Sharona comes out in '79. Disco gets pushed to the side. I love my
2: Sharona, blimey, I can still even hear that kick drum and. Snare drum, so good.
1: That's it, yeah. And then, obviously, um, Dollar does the Paris collection now, which is very rocky. So I thought, like, was it a conscious move to move with the times or was it purely accidental? You wanted to change the sound and just aim for something a bit more harder-edged?
2: Uh, yeah, it's probably all of those. Just you, um, as I said, I fell in love with pop and kind of was listening to everything and, and trying to broaden my horizons and sort of thoughts. If you don't move on, a bit like guys and dolls, we got kicked out because I kept complaining. So I thought, well, if I was complaining, you can't therefore play safe now because you've had some hit records. You've got to keep moving forward, forging forward. And um, we were just caught in the middle there. The synth revolution hadn't, well, it had with Giorgio Moro in a craft work and stuff, but it hadn't really hit the UK. So we we're just in that gap. I, needed, I knew we needed to do something different and be edgier. And so we went the more slightly harder, rockier, also to get some more um, credibility by becoming a band as opposed to being a very middle-of-the-road kind of pop act. Because that, that was it. You're either rock or you're pop. Or well, the pop people, they're rubbish, you know, and you've got to be a rock act to get credibility. I mean, that's kind of, sorry, simplicity, but that's how it was. So that's really how it happened. So just trying to, also probably personally just going, I can be edgier in my sort of presentation, my image, you know, we can do slightly edgier things. I was listening to other, like my Sharona. I want that snare. I think that's actually fabulous. I wanted that sound, you know, I want that raspiness. I want a bit more drive, you know, I don't want this, I want the lushness, but I want the drive. So interestingly, that was the conduit, wasn't it? The Paris collection from shooting stars through to that, which was not successful. And I've listened to that album too in the last few days. There's some cracking tracks on that album.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Girls are out to get you. It's fantastic.
2: (laughs) Fabulous. It's just so, and the video is so good. And I was so out of my depth even doing that and going, got to catch up, catch up, but such a good track. You know, Andy Hill, actually on that video, he was playing bass. Andy Hill was playing bass on the video. So cool. But um, yeah, and even um, You Take My Breath Away. I love that. Like, you know, steel drums and it was cool. It was a different groove, you know. And um, yeah, I I, I have a lot of time for that album and, and it was really upsetting that, we missed the mark because we were trying to transition. But then, yeah. of course, how marvelous that you go through that, and then that leads you know you find Trevor because needs must, and you know, and that's all. It's also learning. It's a learning curve, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Was you producing much on the second album? Did you produce much of that?
2: Um. So yeah, I was very much involved with Greg Walsh. I think I think it's called Dollar and Greg Walsh. The co-production on most of it um yeah very much involved by then I was knee deep in everything you know I was learning what all the drum I was learning everything I mean it's just like overload really sensory overload all the time uh and um there are a lot of things on there that I'm very proud of you know that I was instrumental in doing that and uh we got ever so close. I mean, a couple of those singles. I mean, we're in the fifties or sixties, You know, and that's like basically it's a hit in the making, but you just don't have the right, and that becomes just business. You know, yeah. business.
1: I think you're right. I think the second album's really underrated. I think it will get its time. I really do think it will get its time.
2: Oh, I hope, I hope so. There was a couple of tracks there that I like, Radio. Okay, so just just that, but Radio. The backup vocals that I did, I can I remember absolutely how I did them. And I layered up everything. You know, there's no double tracking. It's all done by the book. Wow. And um, that's probably one of the nearest Carpenter's sounds I've ever achieved.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's,
2: the do-what-what-what-what a- is. That is as near as I could get it. And I was so happy with that. You know, again, a real nod to going, that's how I cut my teeth on all of this. And I worked hard. And I'd, I'd do 64 layers of whatever it was per track. You know, Greg Walsh and I would be in the studio for hours. we go, do you want a break? i go, no, thanks, let's keep going. You know, it's just. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, and no one understands what you do, what it takes to get to that, back in that time period. You know, you can't use machines, ADT machines. It's not the same. That the voice doesn't rub. You don't get the layering. You don't get the fullness, but it pushes it back. You know, in a yeah. Anyway, so I'm dribbling on, but it's terribly important to me the sound, as you can. possibly Yeah,
1: no, hundred percent, it works. And then Trevor comes into the story, Trevor Hall, at this point to do the third album. Um, yeah. How open was he to you, like sort of writing and producing with him as well?
2: Not at all. <laughs> Really? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. no he wasn't even open to producing us but um i managed to i can be quite persuasive it's good good um uh quality of mine and um we met him in a little um japanese restaurant it was quite forward in itself in the west end of london and um in some little back street in soho and um no no he wasn't that interested but he just said But we mentioned that we were going to, later, we've been asked to maybe represent the UK at the Yamaha Song Festival, Tokyo.
0: Right.
2: So clearly I'd had Tokyo in my head for a bit because that was a track on the Paris collection. We mentioned going to the Yamaha. And he thought, why are you going to Japan? It kind of is, his light sparked, his eyes sparked up behind his glasses, you know. And um, then he said, yeah, he he was going to go and write do a session with Bruce Woolley, and he wasn't really interested. He said, well, if anything comes up, and I was quite demoralized, really. I thought, oh, you know, I was so, so sure it was the right fit. You know, I just had this sixth sense sometimes. It sounds stupid, but I do. And um, anyway, he came back, he called the next day, he said, we've written this track. Do you want to come and do the vocals on the demo? And that was handheld in black and white. That was it.
1: Wow. And it's like the perfect track written for you and David, isn't it? It just works as a track.
2: Yeah. Just, but it was, it was trial and error. For, no, I didn't realize it. it's trial and error for them as well. It's just a new thing. They just tried it. And um, it was, yeah, it was just freefall. And it was, you know, that's what's so amazing about it. But I suppose the sheer belief. Yeah. But I knew, and you know what? I've actually written, um, I won't tell you the title because that would give it away, but I have written a new song. Mm-hmm. I've written a couple actually, but I've written one song that very specifically about that moment when I kind of I knew. And that that's it. I mean I mean, you know, it's not like I've got this incredible gift that someone's gonna get it out of me and package it and then sell it around the world. But I knew from hearing Video Killed that just the bass drum, just the yeah. sound and the backup vocals, that's it. For me, that was it. And I can't even understand why Video Killed the Radio Star was a hit probably about nine months beforehand or a year. And I must have heard it, but I think we were so immersed with the Paris collection that I kind of wasn't listening to anyone's music, really. I was just like, very head down mm. but after that all sort of like failed it's a good word to say failed i'll say it twice um i kind of heard this in my car thought that's it it's the clarity it's it's just the sound it's a separation it's the energy it's the understanding of painting a picture which is what you do with a piece of music and um yeah and uh, I, I knew. And um, Trevor, I've got Trevor's book, which I still haven't finished because I keep reading bits over and over. But he says in one part of his book, that's how he sees, that's how he saw production. Mm. And it actually was such a, um, sort of an interesting thing that just he saw everything also in pictures.
1: Yeah. I um I've read the book and I loved the book. I I got the audiobook version so Trevor's reading it and he said he, a lot he went to the pictures a lot as a child. And you kinda yes. get that cinematic songwriting idea, so he, he writes like a film. But he when he talks about um yourself and David in the band, he really says it like with real love in his voice. Like he loved working with you guys. You can tell he was really sort yeah. of I
2: mean he was stoned most of the time, which helps <laughs> of course, you know. Yeah. Um which he admits to. I mean, and some of the stuff he's saying. longer. What is that? Because, I mean, you know, I, I think I smoked twice in my life. Once I took a, a drag, which I hated, and then actually in, you know, in another time I, I experimented with something else. I hated it even more. But I mean, yeah. he was stoned all the time. Like, but, but even in that time I kept thinking, I want to get to whatever. It was, it was still about planets. There you go. That's the theme <laughs> of our conversation. He was kind of astral traveling to that planet somewhere. And I just wanted to be, it's a bit like E.T., I just wanted to be holding his coattails, (laughs) traveling with him. But I wasn't brave enough because he had this visualization of sound that I can't tell you was just um, extraordinary, as we all now learn. But I sat beside his right arm. The entire time, I never left. Wow. Whatever he was doing and Gary Lang and him, you know, if they were mixing or doing something really boring, I never went home.
1: Yeah, because you never but know what you I, yeah.
2: Even sometimes in the back, you know, and Trevor doesn't even remember really, I never left because I knew, I knew that it was history. I, I just knew it, you know, and um, yeah, so we now know.
1: I mean, people like Trevor—they're special people, aren't they? They're, they're like from somewhere else, like David Bowie.
2: Yeah, he is, he is. he is from somewhere. But such a—he um, has an extra dimension when he's working. I mean, I saw him in London, went to dinner um, when I was back in London in 2022. had not seen him for a long time, and we had a lovely. And he was actually working. He said, "Do you want to come listen to what I'm doing?" I said, Are "You serious?" He said, "Yeah, come on down." You know, so. Studio in his house, and um, yeah, but it was um exactly the same. Obviously, we're all older, but uh, but it's this incredible desire to keep making and producing, and and just it's just him, it but it's visualization, so it kind of validated all the things I kind of was thinking about when I was growing up, and you know, so I still. When I hear music, whatever I see pictures, I, I see the same thing. Mm. I just do. If I see a vision like clouds, sort of like a lovely sunset or something, then I'll hear music. So my best times for writing something is when I'm walking or doing something. I certainly wouldn't want it to be sitting in the studio going write something lovely. Yeah. So you know, people work in different ways, and some people who are very controlled, like when I did the Big Kiss album and I started writing those songs, that was a job and I would go and sit with people in a very structured environment going, well, we're going to start trying to write a song today. I'm going, okay, you know, it's, um, yeah. it's how we roll, I guess, as people. Yeah,
1: I mean, you develop your system. If it works, it works, isn't it? Um, so yes. with, with Mirror Mirror, did he just bring that in as well and just go, right, here's your next song? Was it like a production line like that? Was he just was he writing yes. specifically, or just going this song would work? It,
2: it, it was written actually. Um, Handheld Hand, and black and white and mirror and mirror were written in the same session.
1: Wow! If we just talk about the big kiss, what was it like work with like Arif Mardin, one of the greatest producers yeah. of the time?
2: Fabulous, just um, such a gentleman, and uh, it was a very. It was a very weird experience walking into, um, after being at Psalm, um, walking into um, studios in New York, Atlantic Studios, and big, big situation there, and all this really incredible soul music coming out, you know, if if you can hear it, you know, coming out of a studio. And I'm thinking, I'm a very, very, little white, very English girl making this album, which is meant to be this fusion US-UK pop album. And um, it was pretty weird, but, I mean, Arif was amazing and, and um, the engineers, and they were all gorgeous. But uh, I kind of tried to stop thinking about all the incredible artists he'd worked with because it was a bit daunting.
1: I can imagine, yeah, you have to switch. Because he worked with the Bee Gees and Aretha Franklin. Uh, and.
2: I mean, you go, well, that's not me. And then very early on in the piece, he just looked at me, he goes, so what would Trevor do? (laughs) And that's what made me really understand that I kind of was maybe the secret key to Trevor, Mm. you know, and that's kind of, a little bit how, and it worked the same way with Mike Chapman when I recorded um, the Gotcha um, album, uh, film track. Uh, Same thing. They kind of wanted to know how he did it, but they thought, well, if I've worked with him and I was there all the time, then I would know. And I kind of partially knew but Mm. I, well, who would know? I mean, only Trevor knows. No one else can do what he does. Gary Lang will be very close, I'd say. But, but um, yeah. But it was a it was a big question, and I just smiled at him. I said, "I'll just do what I do, and we'll mm. see where we go." Because that wasn't the you know that wasn't the deal, you know. Yeah. But that's you can understand that that it was very high end, big business with the record companies, and I just said, "Look, I'll I'll just do my vote." You know, so.
1: It was a great album. Um, it is it's great. It's very um like I don't know if they were influenced by it, but Transvision Vamp. It's very like late uh, eighty eight. It's very sort of early that. Like I, I could imagine Wendy James singing over your backing tracks and you would Okay. You, yeah, it's it's that would be
2: nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just it would seem to be like a really sort of rocky, sort of punky album. And it, it was, it's a great album. I'm going to put a Spotify link to people that haven't heard it in the description for the video. And
2: oh, some- thank you, my dog. I mean, I, I'm so proud of the songwriting. I mean, that was part of my journey. Hmm. You know, can I really become a songwriter? And um, I was given the opportunity very great to work with the best. I mean, seriously, the best, you know. And um, I was offered What's Love Got to Do with It, a wow. teenage Turner song. And um, I went into the publishing office and I heard that. I went, that's great. I'd love to. I can hear exactly how it would be. It was kind of Trevor-esque, of course, and everything. And um, I was so excited. I went home and I was thinking, I've got a hit song there, if there ever is one. I got a call the next day. Uh, this is before I started co-writing the album. It was, wasn't was going to be all co-written. And I got a call Say, I'm so sorry, but... Um, Unbeknownst to me, uh, it was sent over to Tina Turner's manager overnight and she heard it and she loves it so much that you can't have that. And I went, well, there's no contest, is there? So the, um, the second prize was, but the writer of that song, Terry Britton, is very happy to write with you. And that's how we got to write uh, Too Much In Love, which is the, the track that we wrote fantastic
1: yeah what are you up to nowadays have you got any big news to share
2: i've got some big news um i'm going to be doing a tour fantastic Um, definitely a tour in the uk this year it's not even next year or maybe but 2023 i'm going to be doing a tour late september to early october um only about eight or nine dates nothing too big but uh Dipping my toes back in and it's more a way of going, come and say hi, you know, come and come and be part of something because it's incredibly important. as I said'm am I making some new music? Maybe that's on the cards, but definitely, I just want to be there in person. you know, so it's not all just social media and stuff and talking about the past. There's got to be a combination nostalgia. And current, and also the future. So, you know, I could be doing this for decades, basically, <laughs> until I can't stand up anymore, which would be really funny in itself.
1: Um, if people want to find out about the tickets to get that when it comes out, where would, where's the best place to go for that?
2: um They're going to have to go onto my social media sites. You're going to ask me to tell you. You're going to have to be very clever. Put them all up on your links. Okay. Um, but it's Facebook, Twitter, and Insta, and um, yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be a great show. And it's going to be Teresa Bazaar's dollar, Fantastic. my dollar, with a different slant on a few things and some of the really loved and sort of treasured album tracks that never got a chance to shine. So that would be a really nice opportunity to kind of just perform those live, you know, like Guessing Games, one of my most favourite songs ever.
1: I can say, please do star control and do what's I've got to do with it. Why not?
2: <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Well, there you go. Um, Everyone will have to start. And Probably I will say, you tell me what you want me to sing. And, um, that's a great way, isn't it? Isn't that what you call being nice to go? You tell me what you want, set yeah. up a poll, tell me what you want and I'll see what I can do.
1: Thanks for talking to me today. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. And, um, ask me back and I'll tell you how things are going and I can keep you informed
0: The show is produced edited and presented by Robbie
2: if you enjoyed today's episode make sure to subscribe and leave us a review
0: Hello, I'm Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And this holiday season, I'm once again joined by my buddy, writer and comedian, Jenna Brister. Hey, Danny, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Is it too early? No, never. Never, never. That's right. And season five of our holiday movie recap podcast, A Very Merry Iconic Podcast, we will be covering all of your Christmas favorites. This year, we're covering a Christmas story, Mm -hmm. The Grinch. The Grinch, again. Again. Because we have more thoughts. We always have more thoughts on that (laughs) (laughs) Love him. That's right. We're breaking down the seasonal films while taking plenty of detours along the way. So grab your cocoa. Grab your peppermint schnapps. Meet us by the fire. For our exact schedule, you can follow us on Instagram at A Very Merry Iconic Podcast. It's finally that time. (laughs) So get in the holiday spirit with A Very Merry Iconic Podcast available wherever you listen to podcasts.